Good morning. Today's reading is from 1 John 3, 11 to 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Sherry. Uh, So please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. That's where we are. We're in week 8 of going through uh, 1 John, uh, the book of 1 John. And so it would be good for you to be able to follow, follow along. Uh, John writes this letter in the early 90s of the first century uh, to several different churches. It was a letter that was meant to be circulated uh, around to several different churches in first century Asia Minor. John was very familiar with these churches. Uh, as I've said before and I've read many times, I'll read it again. The purpose, uh, the thesis of this letter that he writes is actually found in the last chapter of the letter, chapter 5, in verses 11 through 13, where John writes, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, that would be Jesus, whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is an apostle, but he's also an evangelist. That's his spiritual gift. And he writes the gospel of John to evangelize. He wants, uh, he wants people to read the gospel so that they would believe in the name of Jesus Christ, so that by believing in him, they would have eternal life. He writes First John to people who claim that they are believers in Jesus and says this is what the life of, of a Christian should look like. This is the life of faith that everybody should be striving for. We're never going to be perfect at it, but it's something that we should be in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit striving for. And so last week we talked about the exceeding sinfulness of sin, that everybody has this sin problem. We all have to deal with it. We were born into it, which means we were born into condemnation. And the only pathway out of that sin is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, claiming him as Lord and Savior, embracing uh, the gospel. But now today, we, we move from that exceeding sinfulness of sin into this idea of love. And how we as Christians, if you are in Christ, we are called to love unconditionally, even when the person is unlovable. So more hard stuff. Last week was hard stuff because I talked about how sinful we are all are, including myself. This week we have to talk about how no matter how sinful somebody else is, we still have to love them. And that's what we're called uh, to do. Uh, so the importance of love is what we're going to talk about today. But I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, As I was studying this passage, I felt like every single one of these eight verses in this passage, 11 through 18, every one of them had a question that needed to be asked of the verse. What does that mean? What does that look like? 
And so what we're going to do today, some, I've never done it like this before, but I'm going to try it. Actually, this will be the second time. I did it in the first service, and nobody left. I was really excited. Um, anyway, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to put up the verse, and then the question that we're going to ask of the verse, and we're going to unpack it uh, that way. So, verse 11, let's start with that. Verse 11, John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So, my question for that, and I would assume many of yours is, what does it mean from the beginning? What is, why is John referencing from the beginning? What, that we're supposed to love each other from the beginning? Is that what he's talking about? Yeah. So the question becomes, where is the beginning? Is it a reference to the Old Testament Levitical law? In Leviticus 19, we are told that we are never to hate our faith brother or sister, and that we are to love our neighbor. This whole idea when Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that was nothing new. Jesus was just citing the Old Testament, Mosaic, Levitical law when he said that. That's what our call is. So is it referencing the, the Old Testament law? Or is John just looking back to the gospel that he wrote in chapter 13, when Jesus said that the world would, would know that we are his disciples because we love one another. Is that what he's referencing? Is that the beginning that, that he's referencing? Or is it kind of a combination of both? And I would say the answer is yes, it's a combination of both, but it's actually even more than that. There's also Genesis chapter 1. God created human beings because he loves, and so he wanted us to love him he wanted us to love others, and he wanted, us, uh, he wanted to also love us. Of course, Genesis 3 came along and kind of messed all that up, but that is still a desire of God, that we would love him, that he would love us, and that we would love each other. That's, that's been a desire since Genesis chapter 1, before the fall, before uh, sin. So it's, that's also what he's talking about. Also, from the beginning would refer to the beginning of John's gospel where we find that God so loved the world that his son came to dwell with us and then go to the cross for us. So there's several points of references for this from the beginning. And then there's one other thing that we can't miss. I've brought this up every time I've been up here preaching in this uh, series. Remember that there are false teachers who are infiltrating these churches that John is writing. This is the primary reason why John is writing is to push back against this false teaching. And so John is reminding these church leaders that false teachers, one of the things they do is that they're always interested in disrupting the from the beginning foundational teaching of Jesus in the gospel. In other words, many false teachers, and this has been true for thousands of years, many false teachers will come in and go, yeah, 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 I got the Jesus thing, but we know more now, and it's really Jesus, maybe not even Jesus so much anymore, now it's all of this stuff. That was already happening by the end of the first century. Let's downplay Jesus, and let's build up all of this new teaching. And it's really the overly simplistic, but always worn out argument that whatever is old must not be good and whatever is new is hip, cool, and correct. Christianity has faced this for centuries. There is always an attack. Christianity is old. It's archaic. It's been proven not to be true, which is not true. Whatever. The attacks come uh, just constantly. I mentioned this last week. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery works like this. I'm alive today. 
And so by that fact alone, I must be infinitely smarter than anyone who has lived before me. I mean, what do they know? So here you go. Just, just imagine this. This actually happened. Because we know from what Solomon wrote, a thousand years before what John wrote, that there is nothing new under the sun. People are always coming up with things that they say is new, but it's not really new. There's nothing new under the sun. So let's say John wrote this letter in the year 92. There were probably false teachers standing up in front of people saying, come on, it's 92 already. Get with the times. That's the old. Out, out with the old and in with the new. We hear that all the time. It's the 21st century for crying out. You believe in that Jesus stuff? Are you kidding me? It's the same worn out, tired argument that has been attacking Christianity for centuries. And yet, and yet Christianity survives. That, that's an amazing thing. It just continues to survive. John says, no, don't listen to that. This is what God taught and what Jesus taught from the beginning. It's foundational, and that cannot be changed. So, so all of this is under this rubric now of this is foundational, and we see the importance of that as he starts to unpack the rest of these verses. Look at verse 12. He says, we should love one another. Instead, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, that would be Satan, and murdered his brother, that would be Abel. And why did he murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So what happened in the story of Cain and his brother Abel? Why does it apply here? And what do we make of this motive for murder? Now I know that's, th that's like Steve Wheeler. That's three questions in one question. Okay, but they're all related. And so we'll answer all of them together. So we're to, we're to love one another. That's what John says. But we're not to be like Cain, who did evil. He murdered his brother. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 4. So why did this Cain and Abel thing happen? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the human condition. So bad things start to happen right away. Uh, let me just, it's a rhetorical question, but have any of you ever had anything bad happen to you because of sin? Anybody? All of us. Okay. Anyway, in Cain's case, what Cain manifested because of his brother Abel, because he was righteous and Cain was evil, Cain manifested envy because of his brother's righteousness. He manifested hatred or rage because his brother was favored. And he manifests an attitude of entitlement because he didn't think he should have to submit to the will, will of God. Uh, one New Testament scholar writes that these three things, entitlement, envy, and rage, are the logical consequences of the one who does not love. And in this case, in fact, it led Cain to murder his brother. And every one of these things, envy, hatred, entitlement, it's at odds with love and often comes about, often comes about because someone else has shown favor and because someone else is living, or at least trying to live, a righteous and honorable life. So that really hadn't changed 2,000 years later when John wrote this letter, same problem with human beings, and it hasn't changed 2,000 years after that to today. Same problem today. John is writing about a problem that has been true of humanity for literally millennia. And, and, and you just look around even today, the primary engines powering our world today, powering our ethos today, seem to be entitlement, envy, and rage, which then leads us to the next verse, verse 13, and question number three. John writes, do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. 
Um, Peter wrote in the 60s, he wrote in his letter, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that will come upon you because you are a person of faith. So again, this is just something that is endemic to the Christian faith. So we would ask, well, then why does the world hate us and us being followers of Christ? Well, Abel had done nothing wrong. In fact, he was doing things well. He was doing things righteously and honorably, and yet he was hated for it by his brother. Following Christ then, 2,000 years ago, and now, today, and trying to live a a life of faith and righteousness will often offend the unrighteous. Living a life, attempting to live a life of honor, living a life in the light, living a life righteously, will offend those who choose to live in the darkness. For centuries, those in the church, those in Jesus' church, have had to suffer rejection for these very reasons. So, uh, do you know why tolerance for ungodly behavior is never enough for those who champion tolerance? You ever notice that? We just want to be tolerated, but then it morphs into advocation, encouragement, and celebration. You know why we're mandated to advocate for and celebrate sin? The reason is because light makes darkness uncomfortable, and righteousness and honor makes ungodliness uncomfortable. The New Testament scholar Leon Morris says it this way, righteousness accuses without words wickedness. Without words, righteousness will accuse wickedness and evil and darkness. And that's why Cain murdered Abel. It's what Paul wrote Uh, about three decades earlier, it's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Paul writes these words. And since they, the they there, are those who refuse to live by God's truth, who refuse to try to practice righteousness, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval. In other words, they celebrate and advocate for those who practice them. Again, nothing new under the sun. This was true 2,000 years ago. It was true 4,000 years ago. It's just part of the human condition. And when people of faith refuse to play along with the world's dogma, the world's teaching, the world's ethics, the world's fads, one of the responses to that is going to be hatred. So get used to it. John says, don't be surprised. Peter says, don't be surprised. Jesus specifically said to his followers that when the world hates you, you need to understand the world hated him first. So naturally, they're going to hate anybody who follows him. It's ironic, I think, when, when a follower of Jesus acts honorably and selflessly serves and sacrifices for others, and then when asked why, and they mention, well, it's Jesus, <laughs> the rejection that comes. And I've, I've, been, in, I've been involved in so many of those, those uh, conversations. Well, next question Uh, Verse 14 and, and question four. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So 
What does it mean that if we do not love others, we abide in death? Now, this is one of those issues that's found at the cross. The greatest love story ever is Jesus on the cross. He went to the cross willingly to die for the atonement for our sins in order to save us. And it was, this is a key now for the next couple of minutes, it was agape love that drove Jesus to do this. Agape, specifically agape love. Unconditional love that drove Jesus to the cross for us. But before he went, Jesus' teaching was laced with references to the fact that if we follow him, we will be given life. And if we have that life, we must also live a life of that unconditional love that he is giving us. So what we need to understand is that in ancient times, especially in ancient Greek, there were many different ancient Greek words that were translated as love. And each of them was very specific about what kind of love it was. Every one of those ancient Greek words, except one, was rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved. Everyone except one was rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved. There is eros love. Okay, so I'll just talk. So Jackie, my wife, I find her beautiful and attractive. I love her because she's beautiful. I love her with an eros love, but I find her worthy of that love because she's beautiful and attractive. Okay? There's storge love, a love that, that is, is secure and peaceful. I love Jackie because I feel secure and at peace with her. But it's the worthiness of her being Jackie that draws that love out of me. I love her with a ludos kind of love. It's a love that um, is, is rooted in entertainment and adventure and excitement. It's fun to be with Jackie. It's, it's an adventure. It's definitely an adventure to be with Jackie, okay? So I, but I love her for that. All of, this, all of these loves are rooted in the worthiness of Jackie being loved. But agape love is rooted in the character of the one doing the loving. Therefore, agape love is unconditional, selfless, and compassionate. In other words, it doesn't matter whether or not the person is worthy of your love. It is out of your character, because you're in Christ, that you are going to love even the unlovable. How, you have to love the unlovable as a Christian. How many of you are married? <laughs> right? Yeah, some of you aren't, didn't think that was that amusing. Okay, I'll talk to you after the service if you want. Okay. See, agape love is not worded, uh, rooted in any sort of worthiness. And that's why agape love, it's the same love with which Jesus loved us. We're sinners. He came and gave his life for us. That's the kind of love he has for us. It's unconditional, compassionate, and selfless. Jesus says you're to love, John also says you're to love others with this agape love because that's how Jesus has loved us. By coming to us as Lord and Savior, he's imputing that character to us. Just as sin has been imputed to us, the character of Jesus needs to be imputed to us as well. Here you go. It's why in the Sermon on the Mount, I've always found this fascinating. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you are to love your enemies. And, and the word he uses for love there is agape. It's as if Jesus is saying to his people listening to this teaching, he's saying, listen, I know that there's nothing in your enemies that you find worthy of loving. Nothing. But you're to love them anyway because that's how I have loved you. So all that to say that the person who is in Christ is a new creation and has been given eternal life. They pass from, life to de uh, from death to life 
And as such, Christians are to be people of love because that's what Christ did for us. Therefore, if we do not love, we abide in death. But it is a challenge. It is a challenge. Here's how we titled this message, and, and this is what we're trying to get at. Just because we're hated doesn't give us license to hate back. We are to return that hate with love. We are never to return evil with evil, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. So, next question, verse 15, question 5. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In order, so how is hate equated with murder? How is hate equated with murder? Well, in order to murder, one would, would first have to feel hate, or at least indifference, uh, but they would certainly lack love. So they would have to feel this, this form of hate or rage or jealousy or entitlement, whatever it is. So Leon Morris, again, he writes this, no one who possesses the attitude that brings murder is the possessor of eternal life. The two can't abide together. Okay? So then you listen to Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, and it gets really tough. He says, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So I think you see where this is going. For Jesus, feeling something in the heart is at best the first step toward doing it. And at worst, it makes you guilty of doing it, at least in your heart. And then we have to look at what Jesus said about the heart. Because that's a little bit tough too. He says this in, in Mark chapter 7. Jesus said to his disciples to instruct them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of, a heart of a, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. We need to check our hearts. I, I don't know about you, but I, I have rarely made a good or profitable decision that came from my heart or from my emotions. Uh, there has to be some serious analysis that goes along with, with uh, decisions. I, I've also, it's, it's taken me 64 years, but I've learned to wait a day before I make a decision. That usually helps, too. And by the way, I've learned to wait like a week before I send an email to somebody. <laughs> you know, it's so much easier, you know, that disinhibition effect. But, but Jesus, but even Jesus, you listen to what Jesus says here, and even Jesus would disagree with our current cultural mandate that all, if all of us would just follow our hearts, life would be wonderful and filled with bliss. No, it wouldn't. That's when we get into trouble. It's, it's uh, our founding pastor, Tom, he used to say all the time, what you know trumps what you feel. What you know trumps what you feel. So then, verse 16 and question 6. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So now I'm on my WWJD horse. So what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus went to the cross and laid down his life for us. I don't think anybody in here is specifically going to be called to go to the cross. Anybody going to be crucified in here? Okay, so 
We're not going to do what Jesus did there. So how do we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters? In other words, what would Jesus have us do? As I've been doing throughout this message, I will use Scripture to interpret Scripture, but I will leave this with no other comment other than what the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Here's how we can actively lay down our lives for each other. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We lay down our lives for others by being outward focused. It's one of the tenets of, of Redemption Church. Gospel-centered, outward focused. None of this curved in on us stuff. So, verse 17, question 7. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his, uh, his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So if you've read the, the New Testament book of James, you know that James says the same thing in chapter 2. He says you, you can't just tell somebody to go and be warmed if you've got all kinds of, of stuff. So what does it mean to close your heart against another, and how do we not do that? Well, as we've discussed above, we really can't trust our hearts, and as such... We need to remember that when we have an opportunity to help another person, the first thing we have to do is make sure that our hearts are not turned inwardly because that's kind of the default mode of our, of our hearts. They're turned inwardly, but we need to be outward focused. Because it's so easy, and I, and I know this from personal experience, it's so easy when somebody's in need to kind of take stock of what we have and in our fallen state of sin decide, well, I really can't help you. That's what it means to close our hearts off to others is to have an underestimation of how blessed we are and an overestimation of how blessed they can be by somebody else. It's Jerry Seinfeld saying, this is what I like about the holiday season. It's other people helping other people, okay? <laughs> not me helping other people. So how do we not do that? How do we not close our hearts in that way? Well, the answer to our heart problem, believe it or not, is not to ignore our hearts, but actually to go deeper and, and try to understand our heart better. That means you're going to have to dig around in that really dark stuff to understand it better. But as Philippians chapter 2 says, we need to constantly analyze our heart's intentions, motivations, and its default to self-preservation by allowing the mind of Christ to direct us. So we dig into our hearts by, by appropriating the mind of Christ to us, by seeking after his will, by knowing him through his scriptures, and that gives us genuine self-awareness. And then we're able to, to keep our hearts from closing off to others. This takes a lot of work. It takes scratching around in areas of our lives that we may probably don't like to scratch around in because we don't like to discover certain things about ourselves. But that's what we're called to do in Christ. And so as such, we wrap this up with verse 18 and question number 8. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. One of the things I love about John is that uh, he's a great rhetorician. He repeats things all the time. He contrasts things, all, he uses contrast all the time, and he's constantly circling back to the same ideas over and over, just using different language to get at them. So uh, he's already talked about all of these things in some way, shape, or form through this letter, but now he's saying it differently. And in this, in this uh, verse 18, he's saying, don't, don't love just in word, but you have to actually go out and and make your walk match your talk. So keeping score in word and deed can be tricky. 
So are there ways that we can make our walk match our talk? Um, so one thing we have to remember is that you and I, in the eyes of other people, some people, not all, but some, uh, in the eyes of some people, our walk will never match our talk. No, no matter what we do, no matter who we are, no matter how hard we try, uh, uh, there's always going to be an accusation that comes at us. There are always people who are ready to point out how, I'll, I'll just uh, make this autobiographical, there's always somebody ready, ready to point out how miserable I am at walking my talk, okay? And, and, and I will also say this, this is a little shot, but it's true. Um, I, what I found is that people who don't know anything about the Bible or the Christian faith are usually the best at doing this with me, analyzing my life, okay? Now, here's the challenge that we face. In some ways, those people are correct because none of us is perfect. In some ways, they're correct. Uh, the only person whose walk has ever 100% matched his talk was Jesus. And even I have, a, I have a close relative who even attacked Jesus as not matching his talk. Well, he went into the temple and whipped people and turned to over tables. So he didn't match his talk, okay? So I, I'm in pretty good company if they're going to you know, insist that I'm not matching my, my, my talk if Jesus isn't either. But at any rate, you see how easy it is for people to, to get into that mode of judging. But here's what we need to remember. There is no person on earth that wants to be remembered or known for the worst thing that they've ever done. Any of you want to... Any of you? Okay, I sure don't want to be known. I hope that... The bad stuff I've done stays buried, <laughs> okay? That is not how I want to be identified or known, is by the worst stuff that I've ever done, okay? So we need to understand that this, is, this attack is going to come. John says, don't be surprised when these attacks come. There are going to be people who want you to be known by the worst thing you've ever done. These are often, by the way, the same people who would readily say that the church in some way hurt or traumatized them, and therefore Christianity, the faith, is a crock. Well, not really. We need to deal with this. The church didn't do that to a person. The Christian faith didn't do that. God didn't do that. And Jesus didn't do that. Flawed, misguided sinners did that. And the church is filled with flawed misguided sinners. We need to understand, and that's sad, it's sad that that happened, but what we need to understand that it's not mutually exclusive. It is not mutually exclusive that people will hurt other people and sin against other people and that Christian doctrine is true. Both are true. And that's one of the tensions that we have to live in. People hurt other people, Christian doctrine is true and good. Both are true. But now the positive side of walking the talk. And I know that this might sound simple and reductive, but it boils down to three or four imperatives that we find in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul writes this, take every thought captive to Christ. Um, Tom used to say, our founding pastor used to say, that uh, some people have the problem that there has never been in their lives an unexpressed thought. Do you know anybody like that? No filter whatsoever. Okay, Paul says, all right, we're going to take it a step further. Take every thought you have to Christ. And then 
Pray about it and decide if you need to say it. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. In Philippians 2, I've already mentioned this, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And in Romans 8, he says, walk by the Spirit. The more you and I strain our lives through this gospel grid of taking things to Jesus before we do them, the more we pray, the more we live out of the mind of Christ and not our own minds, the more we engage the Holy Spirit in all that we say and do. In other words, the more we live our lives in constant connection with God, the more our walk will line up with our talk. So don't follow your flesh. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your agenda. Don't let those things dictate how we live. Submit it all to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Oh, and here's one other way I have found over the years. I know this from experience. Here's one other wonderful way that your walk can do a better job of matching your talk. Here it is. Don't talk so much. (laughs) I used to be the guy that wanted to be the first and the last to speak, and that's, that's, I just found that that was a mess, okay? Don't talk so much. And here's the funny thing is, that's not just me talking. Read through the scriptures. The scriptures tell you, listen, as a person of faith, you need to not talk so much. You need to be careful about what you say. The wise person is the one who holds back. It's, it's the fool who's always blabbing and blabbing and blabbing. Hold back. That'll be a much better way to to let your walk match your talk. Go quietly about your business. I have a friend who's a pastor, good friend who's a pastor in the Southeast Valley, and his mantra constantly is followers of Christ need to learn how to be small. We need to seek to be small. That's biblical. John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 30, He must increase and I must decrease. That's another way that we can get our walk to match our talk. And as I said, the scripture is replete, Old and New Testament, with this idea that God's people need to be of fewer words and more humility. Fewer words and more humility. Let's pray together. God, that would be our prayer this morning, that we would be people that um, not only... Uh, Do strive to live this life of righteousness, uh, even when it's challenging and difficult and and people bring charges against us and we're called to love in the midst of that. That's difficult. But but also to to live a life that's that's small, that's humble, that's quiet, Um, where we express our gifts, but we go about our business without drawing attention to ourselves. Uh, Help us to understand that. Uh, Help us to be reminded that Uh, What your son did for us was something that we could never do for ourselves. He went to the cross for our sins. And because we've appropriated that salvation to ourselves by coming to him in repentance and faith, uh, God, I pray that we would be people that would love like Jesus loved as well. It's a costly and sacrificial love, but it's a love that is worthy of who you are and what you've done for us. So we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.